Well, let me invite you to turn now to your Bibles, uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, and you'll find the same in your worship folder here in front of you. And as we come to God's Word, let's pray. Our Lord, we have been asking that your Holy Spirit would breathe new life into our willing soul. But we confess before you that sometimes our soul is not so willing. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us a new desire to desire, a new will to will, and so fill us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this as we come now to your word that is teaching on this matter of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the help of your Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Let's hear God's word. And hope does not put us to shame. Paul is picking up on his argument, his discussion so far, and we'll put it in context in just a moment. This is the verse we're focusing on, though. Romans 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is God's Word. The Holy Spirit. When we mention the Holy Spirit in church contexts, sometimes it's almost better not to have grown up in church. There are so many different denominations and different theological emphases and different ideas about the Holy Spirit that freak some people out and attract other people, depending upon your personalities or denominational background. Let me illustrate this challenge for us in a couple of ways. The first is a YouTube clip I was sent recently, or it may have been Vimeo. Perhaps you're a Vimeo person, not a YouTube person. I don't mean to offend. But either way, I was uh, watching this YouTube clip, and in it was a picture of a church service, a small church service, the kind of thing that you might find in perhaps a hidden part of some backwoods much beloved by Hollywood that probably doesn't really exist, but it was the kind of thing where you were wondering whether they were about to bring out the snakes. At some moment or other, a few people walked to the front and began to shake. If you read the comments underneath, there was references to various zombie movies. 
And, of course, they fell over. If you've grown up in church, you know this pattern. And then other uh, people came along um, looking very matter-of-fact, as if this was the sort of thing that happened along with your breakfast each, each morning. And they sort of ministered to them and patted them on the head and encouraged them and that sort of thing. You should have read the comments under this video. Uh, a lot of it was good-natured ribbing and joking. Some of it was a little snarky. Some of it was enthusiastic. Now, we need to let this elephant in the room appear, as it were. Because when we mention the Holy Spirit, some people are scared that that is what we mean, and other people are hoping that is what we mean. Let me illustrate this another way. There are, on the other hand, those who wonder whether, in a slightly more nuanced fashion, this theme, this topic, this subject, this person of the Spirit is a forgotten emphasis, a forgotten member of the Trinity, someone that we should emphasize. And they fear that churches that do not, instead of having the Holy Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, have that alternative Holy Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Don't mention the Spirit. Now, we cannot unravel all this confusion this morning. I'm just teaching on this verse. I did uh, teach on the matter of the Holy Spirit in general, to a group called the C.S. Lewis Institute, and you can find that online somewhere or other. This morning, we are just focusing on this verse in this context that is about the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I want to begin this way is because this is how some people are concerned or attracted to the matter of the Holy Spirit. And we need to acknowledge that. I have had some similar kinds of wonderings myself. And what I have found is that the answer is to pay careful attention to what the Bible actually says. And that is what we will be doing this morning. And what I would like us to do, therefore, is, as it were, to begin by removing these, having acknowledged them, putting them to one side, these fears or these presuppositions or these expectations of what this text must mean, as it were, to take off these lenses and actually look at the Bible afresh. So let us try to do that this morning. And what I believe Paul is saying here is the following. Our rejoicing, confident hope. So it's a certain kind of hope, and I'll explain that. Our rejoicing, confident hope will not let us down... Because right now, we may have, those of us in Christ, we may have the Holy Spirit flooding, very powerful image here that I want us to see in a moment, flooding God's love, 
throughout our hearts. That's what I think Paul is saying, and I'm going to explain it for us and then apply it. Let me say it again. Our rejoicing, confident hope will not let us down because right now we may have, those of us in Christ, the Holy Spirit flooding, powerful image here in this text, flooding God's love throughout our hearts. That's what I think Paul is saying. Let me explain that for us, why I think it is that that is what Paul is saying. This verse is structured very simply. There is a statement and then a reason for it. Hope does not put us to shame because the statement, because the reason following. But you need to, at the beginning, as we consider why it is that this is what I think Paul is saying here, to understand that this reason is not a logical deduction. It is not an argument. It is an experience. And we'll need to look at that. You also need to understand that what Paul is teaching in here, though it is about the future hope, it is about something that is available right now. Right now. Foretaste of heaven. Let me explain why it is that I think Paul is saying this in this way. First it is because of the context, as we've seen in previous weeks, Paul has been saying that because we're justified by faith, certain things follow. Because we have this right standing before God through trusting in Jesus, His death and resurrection, His righteousness is reckoned to us, and therefore we have a right standing, a confident, certain standing before God. Therefore, he says, we have peace with God. Therefore, we have access now into this realm of grace and glory in which we stand. Not only that, but as we saw last week, this means that even our sufferings, perhaps very profound and difficult, even those for the Christian, can be a cause of rejoicing because God uses them to train us, shape us, give us endurance. We go to the gym and we take the CrossFit challenge. We gut it out. Therefore, we have character, a proven, pass-the-test person, stamped as the genuine article, a real Christian, and therefore we have a bigger, more certain, more rejoicing, confident kind of hope, a rejoicing hope. And now we come to this verse, and the natural thing is you've been singing some wonderful song, you've read some amazing passage, you've been in church together, and that was exciting, and then you look at your life and you say, what a waste of time. How disappointing. Go to some big conference or other, and it's like, oh, that was great. (laughs) That was wonderful. Five minutes later, you're down in the dumps. What a waste of time. What Paul is explaining is here is how this cannot, this experience that he will describe, how it cannot put us to shame or disappoint us. And in fact, this verse is the climax. 
It's mirrored to the chapter 8, five, chapters 5 to 8 are all about the certainty of our salvation for those who are in Christ. These verses mirror the end of chapter 8. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's introducing this massive theme throughout these chapters. Now, each of these words here is very important. One person said, this is the most compact verse in the whole of Romans, which means it's stuffed with truth. The first thing we need to grasp is it's not an argument. It's not a logical case. Paul reasons all the time. There's a lot of arguments and rational deductions. People love Paul. Those who love reason and rationality love Paul for that, but this is not an argument. This is an experience. Let me break it down for you, this word hope, this rejoicing, confident hope, the audacious congratulation, the boasting as we saw, the rejoicing in the right biblical sense that this is amazing, this truth that we stand in the grace of God, immovable, unshakable. Wow. You think that's the climax? And Paul says, well, there are people out there who are going to say, well, that doesn't seem like it's true. I feel disappointed. And now he said, but this hope does not put us to shame. What does he mean by that? It's a phrase deep with Old Testament reverberation. Those who put their trust in God will not be put to shame, not let down. For instance, Psalm 22, verse 5, and there are many different places you could find this. Let me just quote one. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Were not disappointed. Or in the New Testament. Paul has a similar idea when he explains to Timothy how he's not put to shame by being in prison. So there's Paul in prison, people making life difficult for him and his ministry outside of prison. He must have felt like he was a failure. He was in jail. Everything had gone wrong, surely for Paul. What's more, those who he thought were supporting him on the outside were using his apparent failure at being in jail to criticize his ministry. He could have easily felt disappointed, put to shame. So he writes to Timothy, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. I'm not ashamed, Timothy. And he tells Timothy this in particular because Timothy, as a young minister, was especially liable to feeling discouraged and disappointed. He may have struggled with depression And he says to Timothy, look, I want you also not to be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. And then he mentions another person who was not ashamed of Paul, Onesiphorus, because he took care of Paul in prison, saying he was not ashamed of my chains. So this idea of not being ashamed means not being disappointed, not being let down, not saying to yourself, that was one giant waste of time. It's not reality. I don't experience that. It's a waste of time. Not that. Not ashamed. Talking about the hope, but right now, not ashamed. Because this foretaste of heaven by the work of the Holy Spirit Now, 
Now, additionally, as we get a sense of the elevation of what Paul is saying here, he says, not ashamed, and as he speaks in this way and writes in this way, he's doing it in a certain form of rhetoric, which is known technically as a litotes. You read the commentaries, that's what you will hear, litotes. But that won't do you much good, because you'll just think I just said you have fungus in your toes. So let me try and break down for you what this means, this form of argument. We use it still today. Some will say to you, that was totally so not cool. Same kind of form of rhetoric. Or you go to a movie, and you really don't like the movie, and you come out and you say to your friend, that was a great movie. Not. Do you mean it was really quite a good movie or a terrible movie? I mean, it was a terrible movie. So when Paul says here, not ashamed, he uses the same phrase in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed. He doesn't mean, I'm just a little bit above ashamed. He means, I'm not ashamed. I'm rejoicing confidence. It's like a springboard. Not ashamed. Elevates. Not ashamed. He's glorying in the gospel. It's a springboard, not ashamed. That's all the setup. It's a statement with a reason. Because, because, because why? Why, Paul? Why isn't this all a giant waste of time? Why, why when I feel like it's a giant waste of time, what have you got to offer to tell me that it isn't? Well, Paul says, because hope does not put us to shame. Because of God's love. Now, just about everyone nowadays agrees, and by nowadays I mean the last couple of hundred years or so, that what Paul means here by God's love is the love that God has for us. Grammatically, it could mean our love for God rather than God's love for us, or perhaps even both at the same time. But the context here makes it clear, I think, that what Paul has in mind is God's love for us because this love is poured out by God into our hearts. It's something God is doing, not something we are doing. Now here comes this key word in this passage, this image, poured out. Poured out. It's a word which has, uh, which has particular salvation, historical, even eschatological meaning. That is where we are now in God's salvation plan. That's all that means. It's a word, in other words, that references what is now the experience of a follower of Christ on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus So after Jesus died and rose again, he sent his Holy Spirit. In fact, when the Apostle Peter preaches about the sending of the Holy Spirit, the word he uses is the same as this word here, poured out. Now in this place, what is being poured out is not the Holy Spirit, but the love of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. But it references this same reality that is available to us now as Christians living this side of the cross. Paul uses the same word in Titus when he describes the born-again experience of being a real Christian. He says the Holy Spirit is poured out generously on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this image here, this poured out, is extremely abundant. Let me give you some examples of that. 
It's the word used by Jesus when he describes how new wine in old wineskins, because the new wine ferments, it breaks the inflexibility of the old wineskins, and the wine is poured out. It's a sense of a flood, overflowing, superabundance. It's generous, abandoning moderation, filled to the brim and overflowing. And this love, the first time that Paul mentions the word love, in the whole of his letter to the Romans, he now introduces with this verb, poured out, gushing, flooding. And the word is in the perfect tense. And I'm not just saying that because I want you to know that I know some Greek. I'm saying it because it will help you understand. It means that this reference is something that has happened, has happened, but that is carrying on happening too. This is an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the believers. So where is this love gushing out, pouring out, flooding? Paul says, in our hearts. Now, the biblical idea of hearts is not sentimentality. It is not romantic. The biblical idea for heart is not just about feelings. The heart in the Bible is the center. That's the root idea of the word heart. The heart in the Bible is the center of our thinking, feeling, and willing. It is the core, the heart, the center of who we are as people, our thinking, our feeling, our willing, the core of our personality, our identity, what we want, what we think, what we feel, all combined in the central core of a human individual. So in the very core of us, our heart, the center of our psyche and personhood, Paul is saying, God poured and is pouring his love, his love in such a way that it presses into the crevices, a flood water, presses into the crevices and the corners and every part of our being, more and more his love flooding. And this ministry, this is the picture here, it's not just into as in a jug from outside pouring into us, but in, the Holy Spirit in us, Pouring this love. (laughs) Now comes the Holy Spirit himself. Not the first time he's been mentioned, but now introduced substantially for the first time in Romans. Picked up again in the mirror of chapter 5 and chapter 8 of Romans. Our Holy Spirit is, of course, a person, fully God, not a thing or a force but a person, the person of God. I wrote a paper summarizing various teaching on the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's available at the back if you'd like to follow up that comment more. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, has been given to us. And this tense of this word is in the aorist, a different tense, which denotes completed action. And so what Paul has in mind here is what we would call then our conversion when we become a Christian. So everyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Romans 
Chapter 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And therefore, if we belong to Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ. And so when we become a Christian, we trust in Jesus, we commit our lives to Jesus. God, by His Holy Spirit, regenerates us. He gives us a new heart and a new desire to follow Him. He makes us a vessel fit for His own presence in us. We become a temple Paul says, a temple ready for God himself, his Holy Spirit. And so we are regenerated, able then by the power of the Spirit to trust him. These things we break down now in order for understanding, not in terms of strict temporal sequence. We are regenerated. We become a vessel fit for the dwelling of God, the Holy Spirit himself, and the Holy Spirit is given to us. And so if we are a Christian, we have trusted Jesus, then extraordinary thought, mysterious thought. We have the Holy Spirit of God himself dwelling within us. He has been given complete action. It has taken place. We are regenerate. We have the new birth and we have the Holy Spirit with us. Within us. However you conceptualize that, that's the teaching of Scripture. So what Paul is saying here is that because we are now, if we trust in Christ justified, we have a right standing before God with Christ's righteousness. Because of that, certain things follow. We can be confident, assured, certain. He builds on the argument. We are therefore at peace with God. We are therefore standing assured in this realm of grace and glory. We rejoice confidently, audaciously, even in our sufferings, which doesn't mean we're happy about our sufferings, but we know that God in His Sovereign, loving, almighty power has a purpose even for that, which alone a Christian can rejoice in, the one who loves God. And that hope, that rejoicing, confident hope, even in prison, does not put us to shame. Why? How? Well, Paul grounds this, as we'll see next week, on the objective, external, historical work of Jesus on the cross who died for us. So there is a factual, objective grounding that is not just an experience, but here, this is an experience. We need to let that, this part of Scripture speak. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. That's what it means to be a Christian. <laughs> We have been born again. If we really are a Christian, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. We have God dwelling in our hearts. That is in the very core of our being. And because of that, there is an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is what? Well, we're not here talking about the gifts of the Spirit. I've talked on that before in series in 1 Corinthians. You can look that up online if you like. Here, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, given it's connected to who He is, is primarily a ministry of love to us. His ministry, by whom God poured out His love, is to assure us, convince us, woo us, overwhelm us, break into every last barrier, hold out against the wonder that God actually loves even people like me and you. 
and assure us of that. Convince us of that. Not as a deduction. There's a place for argument and reason. But this is not what Paul is talking about here. As an experience, the Holy Spirit inside, flooding in our feelings, in our thinking, in our willing, changing our desires, persuade us, break down the doors, if you prefer that sort of more aggressive metaphor to woo, convince us, get alongside us in the foxhole with bombs of adversity and machine gun fire going on, in prison and in suffering and difficulty. Right now, bring in this experience, this flooding, outpouring of his love, which is tangibly felt and understood and influences and reorientates our wills, gives us assurance into the hearts of the Christian even now, today. So I think Paul is saying our rejoicing, confident hope will not let us down because right now we may, those of us in Christ, have the Holy Spirit flooding, not just once or twice, but over and over again. God's love, that's how I understand this, God's love throughout our hearts. I'm going to apply this as Jesus applies it. When He teaches on the Holy Spirit, He says, ask, seek, knock. He says, in the same way that a father would not give a stone to a child who asks for bread, how much more will your heavenly Father not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask, seek, knock. Each of those are verbs, imperative, present, that is, it's an ongoing asking, an ongoing seeking, an ongoing knocking. That's how I'm going to apply it. But first of all, I want to bring out this image of pouring pouring out just a little bit more so we can see it. Before I went up to college, I went and lived in Canada. A. And while I was there, I learned many things. First of all, I learned that I was absolutely useless at any kind of handyman work. They put me on construction. I was on construction for two months, and then the rest of the year I was in the kitchen. I was much better washing up dishes. In fact, it was a useful skill. That was my holiday work for years. While I was there, I uh, gradually earned my way around to be able to travel across North America for a month or so on my own. Great time. It was winter most of the time when I was in Canada. And winter in Canada is like Chicago, but more. And one of the main differences is not just that it's colder, though it is, though not much colder than last year, but not just that it's colder, but the snow doesn't thaw, it doesn't melt. And so you just get, it snows, and then it snows, and then it piles up, and it piles up, and it piles up. Well, I was sharing a house with a friend who was about the same age as me. He was 19 or 20. I was 18 or 19. And like good, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, we did the homework, the housework, cleaning all the time, right? 
And, uh, of course, you're meant to shovel the driveway if it snows. Well, of course, we did not. And so there were steps up to the house. I, I think there were four or five, quite steep. They'd all gone by the end of winter. There was just a little slight incline. And after a while, I began to forget they even existed. There's a mailbox nearby, and I remember seeing it when I started in my time in this place in Canada, about this high, and then the snow went up and up, up, and then it just disappeared. There was no mailbox. And then spring. Just the most amazing spring I've ever experienced. That wasn't a very good click. Let's try that again. That was even worse. There we are. Poured. The mailbox began to appear. The steps began to appear. The, 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 the backwood roads that we were driving on were all gravel and grit, and they were ruts like this, and there was water flooding. It was like, whoosh. Poured. Ask, seek, knock. Over and over again, pressing into the crevices of our hearts. Ask. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home or you've heard of Christian things. Perhaps this is all new to you. And you're not quite sure whether really you know this experience that I'm discussing at all. Let me put it for you like this. Trying to follow Jesus' teaching without the new birth is like trying to take SATs while still in your mother's womb. You must be born again. Ask. Seek. So you go to someone's house and you... The doorbell's not working, so you ask, hello? And then you begin to seek. You go around the back, and you notice that there's a, there's a light on the top of the house. You're seeking. One uh, Christian leader from the past put it like this. He said, sue, S-U-E, sue him for this. Seek. So in our small groups as a church, in our prayer meetings, in our personal devotional lives. Seek for more and more of the power of the Holy Spirit flooding our hearts, our churches, our city with the love of God. That when we share then the gospel of our friends and say, you know, God loves me, you know, God loves me. Well, no, God loves me. I know this. Seek. I'll seek, Knock. Sometimes there's a pause and a wait. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. More and more of God's love. So what does that actually look like? What does that mean? It means that we have this assurance even in the face of death. The great secret of the Christian leaders now throughout the world facing persecution in history 
famous martyrs, Ridley and Latimer. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. We this day shall light such a candle as I pray by God's grace shall never be put out as they were facing being burnt. Confidence, assurance. Of course, death is still scary. It's, it's the unknown a little bit. But this foretaste of heaven, that's what it looks like. It's praying. I did a lot of research on revivals. Five years or so, looking into some of the more well-known, less well-known, one of the 1920s, northeast of Anglia and Scotland, this pattern of people gathering together to pray, 90 or so people over a couple of years praying for God's Spirit to be poured out, His love through His Spirit to be poured out. In our own personal lives, this assurance. Listen to this account from Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards. She put it like this, I cannot find language to express how certain this appeared. The everlasting mountains and hills were but shadows to it. I enjoyed a sweet and lively and assured sense of God's infinite grace and favor and love to me in taking me out of the depths of hell and exalting me to the heavenly glory and the dignity of a royal priesthood. And then she says this, I seem to myself to perceive a glow of divine love coming down from the heart of Christ in heaven into my heart in a constant stream, like a stream or pencil of sweet lights. He says, my soul remained in a kind of heavenly Elysium. So far as I'm capable of making a comparison, I think that what I felt each minute during the continuance of the whole time was worth more than all the outward comfort and pleasure which I had enjoyed in my whole life put together. It was a pure delight which fed and satisfied the soul. It was pleasure without the least sting or any interruption. It was a sweetness which my soul was lost in. Then towards the end of this account, she says this, about noon, one of the neighbors who was conversing with me, expressed himself thus. One smile from Christ is worth a thousand million pounds. She says, the words affected me exceedingly and in a manner which I cannot express, for I had a strong sense of the infinite worth of Christ's approval and love and at the same time of the grossness of the comparison. And it only astonished me that anyone could compare a smile of Christ to any earthly treasure. Ask, seek, knock. Our rejoicing confidence, our rejoicing hope will not let us down because right now we may have through Christ the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way on and on and on permeated into the crevices crevices of our hearts God's love poured out. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we ask, I ask that those who don't yet know you this morning would ask for your, the Spirit of Christ to fill them and make them new. We seek. Would you flood your love into our hearts? We knock. Spirit of the living God, full afresh on us.